One Hope Church. Welcome to One Hope Church. And such nice to have a sunshine this morning. Uh, yesterday was, um, we needed that rain, so we can't complain about getting the rain. But uh, it was, uh, it was uh, not a day you wanted to be outside too much. Um, one of those sort of days. But thankful for the sunshine today, beautiful weather. Um, just amazed by God's creation. Um, and I just encourage you sometime, if you haven't gotten away from the city in a little while, go somewhere, go far enough away at night to when you look up in the, in the sky, you actually see all the stars and just sit there for a little bit and consider the greatness of our God um, and how he made all of that that is so vast and powerful and incredible. And it's really, it's hard for us to comprehend, and I don't know that we fully can comprehend even what we see there in creation, um, just looking up at the, the part of the universe that we can see with our eyes, and it goes on so much beyond that. Um, and think how big that is, and how big God must be to have been able to speak all of that into existence and to think about how little we are, but yet how much God loves us. Um, it's, it, it's something I just encourage you to do um, if you hadn't in a while. Like just take that perspective um, and enjoy the beauty of God's um, creation. And then you can look at at little things as well as these leaves turn colors, you know, take a leaf and, and look at it closely and marvel. Um, God is good and he has given us um, so much. So this morning, we're going to finish the book of 2 Samuel. So we will now have completed First and 2 Samuel. And this is actually, I believe, the first time we've taught through these, you know, section by section. Um, you know, might have hit chapters and pieces, but going really verse by verse um, through the, the whole thing. I think that's the first time in the life of our church that we've done that. Um, and so that's pretty cool. Y'all have participated in that and enjoyed that. Hopefully, um, you know, we just take some of those big, um, big lessons uh, from it. We may review a few lessons when we meet next week um, and kind of a, a celebration service that we'll have on next Sunday. We'll talk about that more in the announcements. But... Um, I want to finish this strong this morning. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, and this is a tough, you know, I feel like I say this at least every other week. This is a tough passage. There's a lot of tough, tough passages of 1 2 Samuel, um, and this is another tough passage, but let's make sure that we view it correctly and learn from it the lessons that we need to learn from it. So it says in verse 24, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So let's just stop there for a second. Because it says, The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Now, why was the anger of the Lord aroused against Israel? We're not actually told here in this instance specifically what it was. And so, um, you know, we can have a few ideas. Remember, the majority of Israel had rebelled against David, King David, against the Lord's anointed, when Absalom, David's son, 
you know, led that rebellion. A lot of, you know, Israel went with him, um, and even went with him, even after he had committed such great wickedness in their public view that they all knew about. And they didn't reject him, but they continued to follow him. Um, And so, that could be a reason why the, the Lord was angry with Israel as a whole. But it says he moved against David. He moved David, uh, sorry, he moved David against them, against the people. He moved David against the people to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, to get a full understanding of this, we also need to look at 1 Chronicles 21. In verse 1, it says, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So is it God that moves David to number Israel, or is it Satan who moves David to number Israel? That's a question we need to answer, right? So as we've seen before in the book of uh, First Sam- in First Samuel and in Second Samuel, what we see here all the time is like the Lord moves against. It's it's really the Lord withdrawing His hand of protection and allowing Satan to do what Satan wants to do. And in this case. What Satan wants to do is to tempt David. Now, that's not abnormal in, 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 the, you know, in the scriptures that we have. Job is the most classic example of that, right? Satan goes to God and says, Job only follows you because you have blessed him so much. You, you know, you've made him wealthy and that's why he loves you, is the accusation. And so, God says, okay, you can test him. And so, in that, God is removing his hand of protection over Job and allows Satan to tempt him and even allow Satan to do much more than what happens in, in this case. This is just temptation. With Job, God actually allowed um, Satan to afflict Job and to cause trouble and destruction um, in his life. So that helps us to understand, and and that's not just an Old Testament thing. In fact, it's a future thing. Um, In the New Testament, tells us that same sort of things that happen in the in the future. In Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through twelve, it says, "Now, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come." Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now listen to verses 5 and 6. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So until, like, it's basically that until the Holy Spirit is removed from this, removed out so that the lawless one can do his work, right now the lawless one is being restrained, but won't be restrained forever. Okay? Um, 
and, and, and you can go on to read the rest of that. That's again Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter two, if you want to read that later. Um, but it's just again we go back to that combination of the evil one, Lucifer, Satan, whichever name you use, there to describe the, that one. And the sinfulness of human hearts. And we have that reality that if it wasn't for the restraining power of God, if it wasn't for the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, the human race would have long since destroyed itself. So we talk about all the evil that's in our world, and it's bad. But how much evil there would be if it wasn't for the restraining power of God actively at work. We would have long ceased to exist. Now, this being said, David is also going to be 100% responsible for his own actions. Because Satan cannot make him sin. He can only tempt him to sin. That same thing is true for us today. When I sin... You know, people say, well, the devil made you do it. No, the devil actually doesn't have the power to make you sin. The, the, the enemy can tempt you. But even then, especially for a believer, listen, the scripture tells us we'll not be tempted beyond what we're able to handle, but with a temptation, God will always make a way of escape. So we have no excuse. Especially... You know, for followers of Jesus, because we, we live in a different spiritual economy than even what David lived in. Because before Christ, the Holy Spirit would come in and empower people and help them, but did not indwell them on a permanent basis. But for believers in Jesus, if you are in Christ, that means the Spirit of God dwells within you. God has made his temple within you. So now that power is always there and always available. So hear me out on this. We have the whole scriptural record so we can see human history and, and what is right and wrong in the sight of God. We do not have excuse. We can, we can choose to agree with God or to disagree with God and what God calls sin, but what God has called sin, there is no question about We can pretend like there's a question about it. But that's, we're denying reality. The scripture is there for us. But then also, as followers of Jesus, so we have the scripture, we have the spirit of God within us that actively convic- convicts us and reminds us when we are tempted, don't do that. So when we sin, we're, I mean, we're really without excuse. Now, we still sin. So what do we do then? Well, the scripture tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's for believers. Like That's that process of sanctification. It's not your salvation, which saves you from the penalty and power, saves you from the penalty of hell and the power of Satan. 
but it's also our sanctification. That's not what that's about. This is about our sanctification, that we learn to live as Jesus wants us to live. We can walk in his ways and in his steps. And that's a process. But God's given us all the tools that we need in order to do that. So again, we can't... We, folks, we live in an age of excuses. But as followers of Jesus, we need to be the people who aren't making excuses for our lives. And say, well, my parents X, my community this, my culture that, my economy that, whatever it is. Like, for the followers of Jesus, we... we you shouldn't be doing that, playing that game that the world plays. When it comes to responsibility, we go, no, I am responsible for the things that I do that displease God. I'm responsible. Because God's given me everything I need in order to do well. But now when we do well, we have to be careful that we don't have the sin of pride that comes in. Because when we do well, we also have to acknowledge if it's not for the scripture, if it's not for the Holy Spirit within me, if it's not for the grace of God and the mercy of God in my life, if it's not for Jesus Christ, I can do nothing. So there isn't a place for pride there. And pride is certainly certainly so destructive. And that leads us to this question of why was it sinful for David to take this census of his people. Because we have several senses that, you know, in the scripture, and we're actually they're told how to take a census and what they're supposed to do when they take one. So taking a census in itself is not a sinful act. But it appears here that the, the motivation that David has is the part that's sinful. Because his motivation appears to be based in his pride, that he wants to show how powerful his army is. But you know, the people of Israel were not supposed to, God had warned them and told them they're not supposed to trust in their military might, but in the power of God. And so he is breaking trust with God when he, out of his pride, wants to number the people. That's what we believe to happen. There's others that propose that along with this census, because in Exodus 30, they're directed to take a half shekel ransom for each per, from each person and to give that to the Lord, you know, through the, through the, the tabernacle or to the priests. So I'll just read this in Exodus 30, verse 11, and I think this is really valuable for us today too. Verses 11 through 16 of Exodus 30. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel, as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and older shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. 
When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. What I really like about this passage is that this isn't a ta- like a tax. Um, you know, and in taxes, people would be, you know, would pay a percentage of what they had, right? Um, or even in, t- in the tithe that was given, you know, they would give 10% of what they had. So obviously, those who were wealthy would pay more, though they're paying the same percentage, they would pay more than those who were poor. Okay, we understand that. But this one isn't a tithe. It's not a tithe to the temple. It's in the kingdom. It's not a. It's not a tax. It's a. It's a ransom, and it has. They're giving it for a, a ransom for themselves before the Lord, and then so in that case, they all paid the same because this had to do with a human life. So in this case, the rich were not more valuable. This is what this is teaching. The rich were not more valuable, or the poor less valuable. They were equal in value before God, and therefore they each needed to pay the same thing. And it was an amount that was given that was accessible to everyone. So a a poor person could do this. And it had to do with their, their value as a human being and their worth. And so that's not attached to the specific amount, but what it's attached to is that it's the same. That's the key there. It's the same. The rich and poor are worth the same in the sight of God. God is not a respecter of persons. And this is an important point. So some people will say, as we see here, that there is a there is going to be a plague, but David had option what the penalty was, um, that perhaps they didn't collect this. We don't know. I'll just say we don't know. I would go with the pride as the as the reason um, when choosing between those those options. So let's go back to verse. Two. So let's, let's just start over and read it again. In verse 1, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, verse 4, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. Now, this is really, really interesting because, you know, we've talked about Joab a good bit and how, you know, he's a, he's a relative of David. He also, you know, he's a, he's a brilliant commander on the battlefield. He is full of courage. 
but yet there are times when he just directly goes against an order that King David gives. And, and, and we see that most evidently with Absalom, who David tells his commanders, including Joab, treat him kindly for my sake. Like, he wants Absalom captured alive. And there is Absalom hanging by his hair in a tree, easy to be captured, because he can't go anywhere. And David, I'm sorry, Joab, goes and puts the spears through him. And has his armor, his, his people with him do the same. Directly going against. And then David is really upset about it. And Joab says, you treat your enemies better than you treat your friends. And like, boom. Joab's an interesting character. And we have seen also at times, I mean, he's, he pushes the envelope pretty far. Because that's not the only thing he's done. He pushes it. Yet even he sees this isn't wise. This isn't a good idea. God's not going to be happy with this decision. And the captains, they're all telling him. So again, it's not that David didn't have warning here. It's not that David didn't have a real choice to make. He certainly did. But he prevails because he's the king. With privilege comes responsibility. And then it says in verse 5, And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Ararat on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jezer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tadam-Hodeshi. They came to Dan, John, and around to Sidon. And they came to, to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to the south Judah as far as Beersheba. So they, when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. So again, here, nine months and twenty days... David has opportunity to send messengers and say, stop what you're doing. I, I, I made a bad decision. He's got nine months and, and 20 days to rethink this decision. I mean, even if it was toward the end of it, he said, hey, I made a bad decision. Don't even tell me the numbers. All right? But no. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Verse 10. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. His heart condemned him. We know that feeling, right? You do something and you feel it. And you go, I was wrong. I was wrong. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? 
Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. David had done terrible in the sight of God, but and he give, he has these options, and I think this is really interesting. Though you know, he would rather fall into the hand of God than the hand of, of others, because the famine, you know, you're going to end up being dependent on the nations around them to go and get food, and the enemies can take advantage of that situation for you know that's seven years is a long time. They'd be weakened greatly. Three months before your enemies will, a lot of a lot of bad can happen in three three months at the hands of, you know, the surrounding nations. Again, and how awful that would be for everybody: older people, women, children. You know, the war is awful, and to have being fleeing from them. I mean, like that's. You know, people, people who can't run are going to get slaughtered. Or three days of plague. And he says, Let, you know, that's the one that he views of, he's in the hands of God at that point. So in verse 15 it says, So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba. 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Now this here is really, I mean, that's a, that's a lot. You know, 70,000 people in three days. I mean, that's... You know, think of the vast majority of the city of Athens being done in three days period. But even if in a larger geographic region, I mean, say that was, you know, in, in the state of Georgia, that would be like significant. That would be significant. You would, you would feel that. There would be mourning. It's interesting here that it's the men who died, 70,000 men. Um, it doesn't say anything about women or children, and I'm, I, I tend to think that there, there weren't women or children, that the men were afflicted in this because it, was like, it wasn't a normal plague that went through like you would, normal, like black plague or something like that in Europe. You know, it's, that can hit you know, anyone. This is a, God has been able to be really precise in this judgment. Um, because it's directly from him. So I, I personally think it was just the men because they were responsible as the heads of their household to go along with the rebellion. And that they were the ones who decided for their households whether they were going to go with Absalom or not. You know, they, they, you know where they were going to participate in the rebellion. 
um, if the rebellion is, is the reason. But, he's, but no matter what the case is, these men are responsible for the spiritual health of their households and the spiritual health of their nation. They're responsible. Now, I know this is completely... You say, well, th- that's really, you know, archaic way, um, you know, of looking at things and everything else. Well, certainly, this is how the people viewed the situation themselves. About, I mean, if you asked, if you went to any family in the days of David and said, who's responsible for, for how your family goes? There's not going to be a question that the fathers are responsible for, for their families. There's not a, they're not going to, it doesn't matter how you view things today. When you go back in that time and ask them that question, they clearly would say, the fathers are responsible for their households. And I don't think that you can argue that the New Testament takes that responsibility away. Don't think you can argue it. Because the husband is supposed to love his wife and sacrifice her as Christ sacrificed for the church. That's his job. That's what he's supposed that's what he's supposed to do. He has a responsibility. And he has a responsibility for his children. As well, that responsibility still exists. That has nothing to do with value, that we are made equal in the image of God and in the sight of God. That has nothing to do with intelligence. That has nothing to do with any of those things that the world wants to make them about. But God has said, dude, you're responsible for this. That they're responsible. And when the men of Israel did not take that responsibility seriously, the nation fell away from God. Period. You can see it time and time again. And in the church today, when men do not fulfill their end of the bargain, the church is weak. And I think a lot of it has to do with, with, with men being more susceptible to pride and being oftentimes more stubborn and more lazy. Because the reality is, and, and now, again, I'm speaking in generalities here. But I have generally found women's hearts to be more sensitive to what the Lord wants. Generally. And more willing to do and to make sacrifice and to do what is necessary. And a lot of times, you know, we, I mean, we see women all the time make incredible sacrifices. And then sometimes we ask the question, where's the dude? 
Now, again, this isn't always, again, I'm speaking generalities. You can find your exceptions. You can be, well, I know this person, I know that person, I know whatever. Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you about those individual cases. I'm talking about in generalities. In generalities. And so they had a responsibility and they failed. And the Lord punished them for that. Then verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. You know, in this, David is right and he is wrong. He's right in the fact that he had sinned. Okay? That part he had correct. That part he had, he had sinned, that he had done wickedly. But his evaluation is like, yes, the scripture does say people are like sheep. Everyone has gone his own way. But here's the issue with that. They were responsible because they had gone away from the Lord. Back in verse 1, it says, it says what? The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. He was aroused against the people for what the people had done. David is right to take the responsibility for himself, but he miscalculates when he views it that this is all about him and not about the other people's sin. That part he's not correct about. He is correct to say, as, le- as the leader, as the king, he is correct to say, let everything be against me. And against my father's house. Like he is correct to try to, to own, especially as he views himself responsible for this situation, as leader, he is correct to say, put it all on me. Okay, so we get the differences there. There's nuance in all of that. But leaders always need to take responsibility. I mean, because it doesn't it drive you crazy. It drives us all crazy. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's in a household. It doesn't matter if it's in a company. It doesn't matter if it's in whatever type of work you're in, whatever sports team you're on, whatever governmental thing it is. Whatever it is, when those in leadership don't take responsibility for at least their part, it drives everybody crazy. And we have bought into this false narrative that if leaders ever admit weakness or failure, that they won't be respected. But we know good leaders always say, the buck stops with me, and I'm ultimately responsible. So if, you want to be a, if you're a leader, if you're a good leader... In whatever situation you're in, you own responsibility. Now, what I'm going to say with that is, we all lead something. First and foremost, we lead ourselves. 
Now, leading ourselves may just be as simple as, Jesus, I submit to your leadership. Like, I'm going to remove a lot of my self-will and self-determination here and put it into your hands because I actually believe you'll do a better job with my life than I will. So I'm a, my job here is to follow you. That is still a leadership decision that you're making. Because that leadership skill sometimes in lots of different things is this person's actually better than this than I am. So my leadership is to have them do that job. Right? We've all seen this at work. We've all seen when, when your boss isn't good at X, but they keep insisting on doing X instead of just saying, well, this other employee does that much better than I do, so I'm just going to give them that responsibility. We've all seen that. Well, if you haven't had enough experience to see that, you'll see it one day. It'll come soon enough. It'll come soon enough. But that leadership of one's life, of even uh, the best thing we can do to lead our own lives is get on our feet before Jesus and say, I'll follow, you lead. But that's still a leadership decision. And then we have, to, we have responsibilities over what we've been entrusted with. At this point in your life, that might be little things, that might be big things, depending on who you are, what stage of life you're in. But you're responsible. We want our students to lead in their classrooms. Sometimes that's just as simple as doing things the right way to be a good example. But we want them to lead through that example. In your organization, you might be you know, a lower level or up mid or upper, but you have responsibility. You lead your area what you're doing, what comes across your desk. We take responsibility. How this world would be different if, and what a testimony for the church if just everybody in the church just said, you know what, I'm just going to put my responsibilities before God and I'm going to own them before Jesus and here we go. What a testimony that would be in our world. And there are times where we see that. And if a person, um, I think about one of Claire's co-workers who moved up and over many years doing that and then being honored for that and then being able to point to Jesus and say, Jesus is why. Jesus is why. And to do that in a room of hundreds of people and say, Jesus is why. But he owns that leadership portion there. He takes responsibility. That's a good thing. Even after his terrible mistake. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? 
And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing implements, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All of these, O king, Arunah has given to the king. And Arunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arunah, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. There's a couple notes here. Um, in First Chronicles 21, we're told that David brought the threshing floor plot for 600 shekels of gold. So is this a discrepancy? Actually, it's not. He paid 50 shekels of silver for the threshing floor and for the oxen. He paid 600 shekels of gold for the plot of land that it was on. Two different purchases. Chronicles records one purchase. Samuel records the other purchase. Okay, Don't let somebody use that one and see the Bible contradicts itself. That one's actually pretty simple in terms of you know, ones that we need to deal with. That one, that one we've got that. We've got all of them, really, but that one is pretty easy to understand just on a, on a simple read. Um, number two, this is another point here that's really important. This is key. David says that he's not going to offer burnt offerings that didn't cost him anything. That's a lesson for us. That has challenged followers of God for generations since it's been, been written, that we have a responsibility to participate in the Lord's work from our own resources. Whether we have a little or we have a lot, we have a responsibility. But I want to take that a step further beyond just our physical resources. We know we are supposed to put that to the Lord's work. Like, that's not a question. But we have something even more to offer what does Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tell us? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So this is a little bit different because God has actually purchased us through what Jesus did for us at the cross. When we received that gift, it didn't, it was, that gift of salvation was free to us, but it came at a cost to God. You were bought with a price. Like, God bought us. But then we still have options. Even as followers of Jesus, we have options of whether we're going to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. It says this is our spiritual act of service or your reasonable act of, of, of worship. 
that you do not be conformed to this world. This world wants to mold us and shape us. And we have to fight against that to be molded and shaped according to Christ. And we can only do that by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds must constantly be renewed by the power of God so that we can see what the will of God is and the will of God is good and the will of God is acceptable and the word of God is the will of God is perfect. We each get to present ourselves to God. You see, you know, we in the church, we all get to rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We are united. We are, we are one in a sense, okay, and in a very important sense. When we take that bread this morning, it's one loaf, and it symbolizes that we are united in Christ. That as the body of Christ, we are all part of that one body. So it is true that when the church, one part of the body does something, it's a blessing for the whole body. We all participate in it. Okay? When the church, big C church or little C church, when somebody in the church is sharing Jesus with someone, we all participate in that. We all participate. We all share in that blessing. But there's also responsibility. And we can't live our whole lives just saying, well, we're glad for these missionaries that go out. And we're glad for Bible translators. And we're glad for missionary pilots. And we're glad for this and that. People that have sacrificed their lives. And I'm glad that they did that and that I don't have to do nothing. See, that doesn't really work. Because we each have responsibility. And, and, I, and we need to remember this morning that if, if God has not called you into like full-time ministry or mission work, that doesn't lessen your responsibility as a disciple of Jesus. Because ministry is to happen wherever you are. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, wherever you study, wherever you, ministry can happen there. And I know that, you know, and, and don't let your personality get in the way of that because I'm not, we're not asking, and the scripture doesn't ask every believer to go stand on the street corner and preach. So you say, you know, that's not my personality to do that sort of things. Well, a lot of times when people say that, they're actually really, you know, some of the kindest people in the world. It's like, just be kind. See that person in your class or at your work that is going through a hard time or needs a little something and write them a note. And I mean, y'all, y'all do that. I mean, so you do that stuff so much better than I do in terms of noticing giving a little gift, a little note, a little thing, but then the test for you is, the, is what do you do with that door that, that that act of kindness opens? 
Because that act of kindness will, will usually open a door. But then what do you do with that open door? And, and that's where you got to come out of your shell a little bit and, and, and say the name of Jesus. That Jesus is why. But it doesn't have to be going out on the corner. That might not be your way. It might not be the way God has designed you or made you or called you. It's writing that little note. It's giving that little gift. But what do you do with that open door? And the same for the one who's called to go preach on the corner. That might make an open door, but what do you do with that? Do you end up shutting it back? Because of attitude or, or language or harshness or whatever it is. Each one has a responsibility and how they're called to do it well. And to do it for the Lord. And to do it to be a blessing to other people. But there's so much in the New Testament about about counting the cost of following Jesus. And I just don't know that we can get to the end of the story of our days and look back and have a real faith that says it costs me nothing. I don't see that as compatible with our call or with the scripture as a whole. Old Testament through New Testament. We see on the other side of it, I have counted the cost. What does it gain? You know, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Jesus talks about things like the person who builds the house and it does the accounting first to make sure they can complete it. There's all sorts of conversations in the scripture about cost. And again, I'm afraid... Well, I, I, I want to I be careful that we don't end up on, t- on either side of this. We don't end up preaching a gospel that's works-based, where you have to do X, Y, and Z to be saved. But at the same time, we don't want to preach a gospel that says being saved isn't going to change anything in your life. Because it certainly will. It certainly will. What our lesson from today comes down to is that followers of Jesus have the capacity to do what is right. We need to admit when we do what is wrong. We take ownership of our spiritual health in our lives before the Lord and yet we, are not de- we don't overly depend on ourselves we depend on Jesus and his church to help us but in that church we do our part we do our part we all have a role to play we all have a part to play so whatever that is before the Lord we ask ourselves the question am I doing that well for his glory. So I, I hope that that's just a challenge. Um, it's um, October the 20th. 
What's that? Yeah, it, it's October 20. Here's the deal. We still have some days left in this month and two more months to finish this year strong in the name of the Lord. Finish it strong and then start, if the Lord gives it to us, if he gives us the rest of this year, if he gives us a new year, you know, let's finish this one strong and start the next one from a position of strength. Not sitting there going, man, wish I'd done a lot more in 2019. But finish this one well. And start the next one well. But finish this year well. Let's commit to that individually and as a church that we're going to finish this year well for God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We're thankful that though we cannot fathom the price of our salvation, that you were willing to pay it. And Lord, that we would not be content just to offer you praise that cost us nothing. But that you would have all of us, our whole selves, for your glory and for your honor. Lord, this morning we take that responsibility before you seriously and we ask that you would examine our hearts and that you would convict us and strengthen us as we need it. And as we take that bread and that cup this morning, we give you thanks and we give you all the glory. And Lord, please do not allow pride to destroy us. Help us, we pray, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Just want to encourage this morning in our open time, you know, short prayers of thanksgiving for Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Just want to say, God, I love you. Jesus, I love you. That's enough um, to read a scripture, to request a psalm, but just everything for Jesus this morning. Okay, focus on him, our words and encouragement toward, toward him. If you need anything, you know, in your life of, you know, prayer or counsel, Please stay after and and receive that. Um, But right now, let's give Jesus his time and his glory.